Thank you for the music, for that beautiful prayer, and for what was unquestionably the most moving reading of the Athanasian Creed I have ever heard. <laughs> I thank the Reverend Legrone for the honor of addressing you this morning on this my first visit to Asbury. I bring you greetings from colleagues at your younger sister institution, Duke Divinity School, founded just three years after Asbury Seminary. Both institutions emerged in response to a vision of responsible leadership, teaching and preaching for the Methodist Church and indeed for the church throughout the world. Outrageous ambition, as we sometimes describe it at Duke, outrageous yet godly. On a personal note, Professor Lawson Stone and I were doctoral students together, and I wish to honor him in this co company by saying that had he not had the patience to teach me how to use a personal computer some 35 <laughs> years ago, I might still be sitting in New Haven, Connecticut, typing out my dissertation. <laughs> Thank you, Lawson. Pray with me, please. May this morning's sermon be worthy of the wide tradition of learning and prayer in which we stand together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Psalms are the most immediate part of the Bible. By immediate, I mean that we read we read them not as though we are watching a narrative unfold, as with the Gospels, nor are we listening to a pastoral instruction, as with the Epistles, or an inspiring discourse, such as Moses' farewell address in Deuteronomy. Rather, as you know, most of the Psalms are prayers, formulated for us to take directly into our own mouths. So they are God's word speaking to us out of scripture, and at the very same time, they are our words spoken to and of God. And what is more, they express the full range of moods and moments in which we find ourselves. The Psalter is, as Calvin beautifully put it, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And for that reason, it is my favorite book of the Bible for prayer and preaching. The Psalms are songs, rhythmic poetry. Biblical Hebrew does not distinguish between poems and songs, both are sheer. Um, think spoken word recitation, maybe rap. <laughs> Psalm 19 has a distinctive rhythm, perhaps two or three different rhythms. I'm going to read it to you now in my translation, and listen carefully. I think you'll catch some of those differences of rhythm even in translation, and I'll note that in my translation, I am using Adonai for the divine name. The heavens are telling the glory of God. 
and the firmament proclaiming the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night discloses knowledge. There is no speech, neither are there words. Unheard is their voice. Through the whole earth their call goes out into the end of the world, their words. For the sun he has placed in them a tent. And it is like a bridegroom going forth from his bridal chamber. It rejoices like an athlete to run the course. From one end of the heavens is it setting forth and its circuit to their ends. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The teaching of Adonai is whole, restoring life. The testimony of Adonai is reliable, making wise the unknowing. The statutes of Adonai are straightforward, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Adonai is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Adonai is pure, standing forever. The judgments of Adonai are true. They are altogether just. They are more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey, the rich flow from the comb. Indeed, your servant takes care with them. Much comes from keeping them. Unwitting sins, who can discern? Cleanse me from hidden failings. Also, keep your servant away from the arrogant. May they have no influence over me, that I may be whole, be clean of great wrong. May the words of my mouth and the thrumming of my heart find favor before you. Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. There are a few psalms that speak directly to the particular vocation we share as students of scripture, and this is one of them. Psalm 19 is the meditation and prayer of a Torah scholar, one of three or four psalms that specifically locate the life of a divinity student or teacher within the divine economy. These are for us the pearl beyond price. The encouragement we may get from them is invaluable simply because our vocation is to study the things of God. Because our vocation to study the things of God is neither well understood nor greatly valued in our society. I don't know how it is for you, but most of my family and friends outside the world of theological education, even some of them within theological education, don't really see why I have to spend so much time studying. <laughs> I wonder if you have experienced this. Perhaps many of you came here because some mentor in the church saw in you a gift for ministry. 
I do not for a moment discount that judgment, presumably based upon your personal character and gifts. This is crucial. And yet I wonder, in encouraging you to go to seminary, did they mention that getting out of this place with degree in hand, which I think some of you expect to do in a few weeks, would require the hardest intellectual work you've ever done in your life? It has become my practice to ask my first year divinity school students on the first day of class, has anyone ever told you that it is really difficult to read scripture well? In a class of maybe 150 or more students, I can expect that no more than a handful will raise their hands. That used to shock me, since my whole life is predicated on the understanding that reading scripture well is just plain hard work. I have been working at it for decades, and I like to think I am competent, yet the work has not gotten easier. If anything, it gets harder. And when you stop to think about it, that makes sense. If you are reading scripture with spiritual alertness in such a way as to gain life-giving insight, and why else would you read it? Then you are getting more deeply into its irreducible complexity, its complexity and therefore its inexhaustible fascination. Arguably, the complexity and inexhaustibility of scripture is the single most important thing for any theology student to recognize. And yet, this seems to be a secret too well kept in the church. I am not sure why we don't talk about it more or acknowledge it more fully in practice. Even biblical scholars often proceed as though the chief aim of interpretation is to reduce the range of meanings of any text to just one. Do we think that acknowledging the possibility of looking at the Bible or any part of it from many angles and seeing different things, do we think that somehow devalues its witness to the one who created heaven and earth? Do we imagine that God wants it to be simple? One might draw exactly the opposite theological conclusion saying, for instance, that because God is one and yet infinite, scripture itself is coherent and yet potentially infinite in its meanings. Indeed, this is precisely what the rabbis of antiquity did say. Hafochba, hafochba, hakoba, Turn it and turn it, they said of scripture, for everything is in it. 
Scripture has a plenitude of meaning, and therefore deep study and enthusiastic argument about meanings has ever been the primary religious activity in traditional Jewish communities. Surely, that is a major factor in the survival of Jewish faith and faithfulness through, through centuries and against the greatest odds of cultural marginalization, persecution, mass murder. I begin with the sobering observation because I am convinced that the church has much to learn from our Jewish neighbors with respect to the reading of scripture. It is apt for us to remember the other community with which we share the scriptures that constitute three quarters of the Christian Bible, what we call the Old Testament, as we begin our own brief study of one of the most beautiful of the Psalms, which celebrates the life-giving practice of dwelling on God's word. Our psalmist describes that practice with a rare and lovely phrase, Torchat Adonai Tmimah, Meshivat Nafesh. The Torah, the teaching of Adonai is whole. Meshivat Nafesh, restoring life. You could also translate that last phrase, restoring the soul, as is commonly done. The phrase occurs just one other time in the Bible to describe Naomi in the book of Ruth when at last she holds her little grandson in her arms. The old childless widow was effectively dead and now with the future in her arms she is vibrantly alive. That is the state that the psalmist envisions for us as we study God's word. Without that practice, our spirits are broken. But Torah, God's holy word, is whole and the source of our wholeness. It restores to us the power of life. This is an arresting statement coming to us across the millennia from an ancient Torah scholar whose testimony sounds as fresh now as it did in the Iron Age. He, presumably he, speaks to us honestly about the difficulty of getting it right in our efforts to live a faithful life. The difficulty sometimes of even knowing if we are getting it right in the sight of God. Probably all of us wonder that sometimes, maybe often. And so it is good to linger for a few minutes in the company of this young poet and believer whose hopes and questions so closely echo our own. As I have already suggested, there are more dimensions to this poem than we can explore now. 
but I'll touch on three or four points that will, I hope, encourage you in these final weeks of the academic year as you prepare to begin the work of the summer or perhaps prepare to enter into a new stage of ministry. First, reading scripture well can open your eyes to see the world afresh as God's own creation. It is obvious but worth saying because we tend to forget the vast cultural gap between the biblical writers and ourselves. Israelites spent much of their time outdoors. And so our psalmist naturally begins by looking up at the sky, by night and by day, the most visible testimony to God's glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims the work of his hands. If you have, not, if you have seen the night sky in the absence of light pollution, then you know why the psalmist sees the sky as a speaking presence, proclaiming the work of God's hands, ma'aseh yadav, the work of God's hands, the common biblical term for everything God has made, humans included. We are ma'aseh yadav, the work of God's, God's hands no more and no less than the sun, the moon, and the stars. So this is an importantly inclusive statement, one that yields insight urgently needed in our own generation. This opening verse suggests that the so-called natural world can help us humans recognize our own fitting place among the other works of God's hands the non-human creatures who so vastly outnumber and outshine us. The heavens speak of God eloquently yet wordlessly. There is no speech. Unheard is their voice. You could also translate that richly ambiguous poetic line, blinishma kolam, you could translate it this way. There is no speech, there are no words, blinishma kolam, unless their voice is heard. Reading it that way, which at this moment I think I prefer, if the heavens did not speak of God in their own distinctive way, the world would have no words at all. This is an insight both mystical and eminently practical. If the heavenly host did not express itself appropriately, emitting light and warmth in just the right degrees, then we talking creatures would have no words, no life at all. Consider how different are the implications of the psalmist's perspective on the world from our modern conception of nature, an English word that has no biblical equivalent. 
nature as we speak of it, is something out there, an entity separate from ourselves, a thing that we might investigate or enjoy or mine for its resources. But starting with the first chapter of Genesis, the biblical writers consistently speak of the world as, the as God's exquisite work, suffused with wonder, responsive to the creator in its every aspect and movement. If our own sense of wonder is muted, is one reason for that the relatively new human habit of confining our view to what we see from a car window? And even more confining, training our eyes on an electronic screen held in our palm? If so, then one of the things we might gain from this psalm is the prompt to look up and around, to take ourselves and our devices out of the center and recover what, as far as we know, is the uniquely human capacity to wonder. My young friend Zainab recently spent her final high school summer interning in the biochemistry lab of one of Duke's Nobel laureates. Zainab is a faithful Muslim, and during her first days on the job, she was surprised and disappointed that many of her colleagues and mentors in the lab made a point of declaring to her their own atheistic stance, implying that no serious scientist would believe in God. Following her lab orientation, Zainab had her first opportunity to view cells through the lens of a multi-million dollar microscope. And she burst into tears of both awe and perplexity. Immediately, Zainab telephoned her father, an imam, and asked, how can someone see all this beauty on a micro scale and think it is nothing more than coincidence and physical reaction. How could a human soul not believe in a creator? The psalmist is fully aligned with Zainab on this point of wonder. And it is instructive for us Christians to recall that the psalms are a part of the scriptural canon that Christians and Muslims largely share. A second point about reading scripture well. It recalls us from distraction. Distraction, the bane of the spiritual life. If you have any taste for poetry, then you know that you cannot read a good poem while multitasking and expect to get anything from it. <laughs> Likewise with scripture, which is nothing other than the poetry of our relationship with God.
And what are we meant to get from an attentive reading of scripture? Listen carefully to the psalmist. Mitzvat Adonai Bacha, the commandment of God is clear. Me'irchat enayim, enlightening the eyes. Christians might well hear an echo with the letter to the Ephesians in its prayer that the eyes of our heart be enlightened in Christ, that we might know the hope to which we are called. This is fully congruent with the psalmist's affirmation that God's commandment enlightens us. That is, it orients us toward godly wisdom and right desire. Paying attention to God's call upon our lives is the best and finally, perhaps, the only antidote to the distraction that seduces us to give ourselves to the countless things that don't really matter. An endless stream of trivial information, opinions, images flowing through our devices, literally filling our hands and worse, our minds, without making us any wiser. There could be no clearer instance of the root sin of distraction from the things of God. Distraction sucks up time and spiritual energy, but yields no fruit. That is why, according to the wisdom of the Christian monastic tradition, distraction is the root of all evil. The Bible challenges our inclination to be distracted, largely because it is, for the most part, difficult reading. Good poetry is, in Paul Engel's wonderful description, boned with ideas, nerved and blooded with emotions, all held together by the delicate, tough skin of words. Engel's imagery of poetry as a vital human body is apt for us. It reminds us that we approach scripture as we would approach a person we respect and trust and do not take for granted. We listen to our friend carefully, not assuming that we already know what she has to say nor assuming that we will necessarily understand it easily. Similarly, the psalmist says that God's teaching, machtimat peti, makes wise the unknowing. Like a wise friend, scripture focuses our attention at this, and at the same time challenges us to stretch our minds in new directions to consider more complex ways of looking at the human situation, even more complex ways of seeing ourselves, which is the hardest thing. If you accept the challenge to read thus, then you will inevitably read more slowly. 
And this is the psalmist's third point about reading scripture well. It slows us down. Your servant takes care with them, says the psalmist, of pondering God's teachings. I think of something one of my students said some years ago now, a few weeks into the introductory Old Testament class. When I came to Divinity School, she said, I thought my problem was that I read too slowly. I'm sure we have all had that thought at one time or another, certainly as graduate students, when we find ourselves one month into class and already 1,000 pages behind in our reading, <laughs> never to catch up again. But this student, like the psalmist, thought the problem through to a deeper place. She went on, now I realize that I read too fast. I need to read slowly enough to think thoughts I have not had before. It takes patience to read scripture that way. Patience and a lot of trust. Trusting scripture to open you to new ways of thinking differs fundamentally from the more common practice of proof texting, skimming the text in order to reinforce what we already think. Proof texting is actually a way of not reading scripture. By contrast, the kind of reading the psalmist commends to us takes trust because it entails risk. And this is the fourth and final point we will treat this morning. Reading scripture well can enhance our capacity to see and tell the truth about ourselves. Telling the truth about ourselves Maybe that is what the student psalmist has in mind when at the end he prays to be delivered from the influence of the arrogant. For what is arrogance but fear of the truth about ourselves? Just listen to this urgent question and plea with the penultimate lines of the psalm. Unwitting sins... Who can discern? Cleanse me from hidden failings. Also, keep your servant away from the arrogant. Do not let them influence me. Unwitting sins, Shkiot, who can discern? The obvious answer is no one. At least no one without God's help. No matter how young and promising any might be, or how old and experienced, we are all liable to be exposed as foolish by God's searching light. Indeed, the only way not to be a fool is to break with the dominant culture of arrogance 
and ask for healing of the brokenness hidden within us. Hidden so deeply, perhaps, that we do not even know it is there. The Psalms are not the prayers of the complacent, but rather of those making the journey deeper into reality. The insight that Psalm 19 affords us is that in the godly person, humility and dignity always coincide. For humility, naming honestly our limits, our weaknesses, and mistakes. Humility is the path worn clear by the saints, and it leads straight into the province of God's outpoured mercy. It is there and only there, in the kingdom governed by mercy, that we can claim the dignity of knowing God as Tsurivigoali, my rock and my redeemer. Those are the psalmist's closing words. They express the genuine security, my rock and my redeemer, found through dwelling on the word of God. May God grant each of us the grace to grow in humility and dignity that as citizens in the kingdom of mercy, we may witness truly to the one who reigns there, world without end. Amen.